they've taken out $600 million in convertible notes to buy Bitcoin. That's what they've done. And the market has rewarded them. You know how I say you should never short an individual stock? This might be the one. (laughs) This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. There he is. What it is. How was your week? Oh, it's great, man. So uh, my podcast shed studio last week was 16 degrees, and today we're at like 43. So the hot takes are coming. Oh, I mean, literal, literal hot take. This is what I was telling you about with the HVAC, bro. (laughs) No, this is nothing to do with your HVAC. Nothing at all. Um, Yeah, here, let let me explain why I had a great week. I'm happy to discuss with the committee my purchases of GameStop shares and my discussions of their fair value on social media. It is true that my investment in that company multiplied in value many times. For that, I feel enormously fortunate. I also believe the current price of the shares demonstrates that I've been right about the company. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. Roaring Kitty. <laughs> Dude, I had that queued up for you too. <laughs> okay, yeah. he, That's great. He went on, he went in front of the committee and he, he said, I'm not a cat. And then he looks exactly like the Robin Hood's uh CEO, which is hilarious. And he's he has a whiteboard behind him and he like took a piece of scotch tape and put a picture of a kitty cat behind him. Is that not the most hilarious thing? I, I think it is. I didn't watch I didn't watch any of the um hearing so I, other than that clip i don't know what happened but overall if you if if anyone watched the full like five minute his full five minutes because that's the only part of the hearing that i watched was his he actually he did a solid job like solid from a pr perspective um he he hit all the facts he like um got sympathy um from in a few areas like it was a solid pr job and I guess as we start this off, we're pretty deep in the weeds. Uh, I'll reset for the listeners. So Roaring Kitty, a.k.a. Deep Effing Value, is uh, one of the key catalysts behind the GameStop rise. It makes for an entertaining listen. Yeah, I, Dugos, I'm not surprised he came off well. I mean, he's clearly a very bright guy um, and I think a, a very analytical guy. So he probably thought through uh, some of the criticism that might be coming his way and tried to address that head on. True. I, I would also probably surmise that uh, Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood, is also a very bright guy and it's also very analytical. And he is terrible, but he comes across terribly. So the, those two things do not a speaker make, I would say. <laughs> oh, you just called some BS on my end, huh? Um, I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, the other reason I'm super excited is today is uh, 13F day. I think I'm pretty sure you did the 13F for the guy on TikTok investors that just buy stocks that goes up. So I wonder if you want to kick us off because the listeners that are waiting for the Dougal's knowledge, they probably aren't going to make it to the end of the show. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I looked into 13Fs. I looked at about, uh, I looked at a bunch. Um, so I looked at around the top 20-ish uh, hedge funds uh, and looked at their 
um, what their 13Fs are. And 13Fs being, it looks at the, the position sizes um, of different, different investors. Uh, so it shows like what they bought, what they sold, and what their current holdings are uh, by quarter. The SEC requires it. And so I looked at about the top 20 hedge funds. And I also then just kind of cherry picked some other spots that were interesting. Like I grabbed Berkshire's, um, I grabbed Kathy Woods or ARCs overall. Um, I, I grabbed Burry's too, Michael Burry. So uh, let me drop some interesting facts. Um, I, I did find most interesting to me was, uh, was ARCs. Um, so Kathy Woods. And so this looks, it's not for any individual fund, but looking across ARC overall. Let me just give the high level. Kathy, respect you. You did great stuff last year. Um, you, made, you made yourself the largest uh, active ETF. Great. Thumbs up. And YOLO trip to nonsense is what I would call this thing. Like, <laughs> yes. it's, I, I think it might have a 2021, like some hotness, just like she had in 2020. You never know what the market's going to do. I can see that. But oh my goodness, I was just looking at these, these picks and they are, they're companies that uh, for the most part, I would say like not bad to own, but right now, like for that to All be right. where, where you're, you're throwing in your chips. This is really bad. I can't wait to hear the companies in it. But uh, my surprise for you is uh, a three-year bet. I was hoping you'd take the other side. I want my portfolio against Kathy Wood's portfolio. Um, and I will not take I, that bet. Sorry. Oh, come on. If any of the listeners at Skippy Doogles will hit that up, uh, we'll put some real money on the line, probably in crypto, you know, you know how it works, right, Doogles? But uh yeah, that thing's I, gonna I, blow I put up. the Skippy portfolio against the Dougal's portfolio if you want to do that over three years. Ooh, that's interesting. Let's talk about anyway. that more. Yeah. yeah, let's talk. Oh, see, but you, you backed away there, though. You backed away. It's not automatic for you, and I'll take that as a win. <laughs> for, first, I'll say what I think are some, what I did find interesting, I think, in there. And she has one of her ETFs is a genetics um, ETF. And so her big pickups were mostly in the, um, in the healthcare space which I thought was pretty interesting. And so she grabbed like Teladoc, uh, Pacific Biosciences and Exact Sciences are three um, of the biggest pickups. But as far as holdings overall, I mean, I think we all know what number one is, right? I don't, I don't follow her stuff well. Oh, really? Uh, so her number one holding is Tesla. Um, and it's, it's, it's about 8% of her portfolio. Uh, that's her number one holding. And that's basically because Tesla went up 8X last year. That's yeah. a very significant reason as, as to why, um, you know, she blew up. Uh, then she goes Roku, Crisp Technologies, and Teladoc and Square, uh, kind of round out uh, that the tops there. Um, but that's where, like, when I when I look down this, there are some picks that, like, I companies, some companies I think are like awesome longer term. I think Square is awesome longer term. She owns, I, I uh, agree. I like she owns Square. Twilio. I don't like I, the price. Um, I love Twilio. I don't know too. much about Twilio. Um, yeah. So let me drop some knowledge. God, always dropping knowledge to you. Um, no, I'm joking. You, you like, sure you're not going to spit some lyrics? I want you to spit some lyrics. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if that happens. Um, but so Square, Twilio, and Shopify are three that I actually love um, that she has, but they're also crazy expensive right now. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, so Twilio is basically like the, um, think about it as the backbone to the future of communications on the internet. And so uh, if you are a developer and you want to um, you want to send text messages from your app, you're probably going to use Twilio to do it. So it's instead of having a, a pure like telephone service, you can use Twilio and program off of it. So it's built for developers. So like Uber uses Twilio to send all of the notifications and all that stuff. Oh, like DoorDash, everybody else. Is yeah, that, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Behind that is yeah. Twilio. I, I think it's it's phenomenal. Um, so Twilio, Shopify, 
online commerce uh, shopify right? everybody knows yeah that's it's awesome um they're just so expensive right now like that that's the issue square yep. as well um but so i love some of those holdings but yeah but overall i just think she's like there's nothing in there that looks like it's going to hedge against the expensiveness like that's the thing that that is going to be a downfall so it could be a 2021 like hotness and then capitulation bro yeah so, that's my view other interesting things so largest new holdings uh bury um bury picked up uh, Pfizer in Q3. So that wasn't brand new, but picked up Pfizer. I think we all know why. And then Citi yeah. um, was the biggest pickup for him, which was 15% of his portfolio now. What do you think about I those? mean, I'm going to dig into all those. I I like the play. Banks have been really cheap. Banks are probably undervalued in my eyes. Although if we fall off a cliff, no one's going to treat bank stocks, bank equities kindly, regardless of if they're undervalued or not. So I don't feel like that's a great hedge if you're talking about that. And I'm, I'm going to drop the another big pickup, which I think you're probably going to take this and run, is uh, Intel. That's that's another big pickup. Hey, don't steal my – I get to talk Klarman. Oh, man. So I stayed with Bopost and Seth Klarman. If Seth Klarman, um, brilliant value investor. Uh, one of the best books around is called Margin of Safety, written by him. Uh, he just, I'd say, doesn't really give a damn. He doesn't show up on CNBC. He people want him to write more books. People want him to publish more copies of his first book. He just doesn't do it. Um, these numbers yeah, that looks are like old. three grand. If you want to pick up a copy, of that it's like three grand. Yeah, yeah. It, these these numbers are old, but he's worth something like one point five billion. Um, he's managing somewhere in the range. I'd say north of thirty billion. The reason I respect him. Well, there's tons of reasons I respect him, but one of the reasons I did his 13F right now is because he's been known to be like, the market is crazy valued, have your money back. Like, I, I don't want your money anymore. So he's not a guy that's going to get caught in the irrational exuberance of the moment, right? He's always looking at value. And Dougal's, I loved this. I can't believe I waited so long to review his 13F. This thing is, is pure gold, all right? So... I'm only going to talk about things where he increased positions. Um, and you're exactly right. Intel, baby. And I saw Intel and went, has the man lost his way? And then I dug into the numbers. Intel current figures, PE of 13, price to book of three, which is low for something like Intel. Uh, debt to equity, 0.4. Um, current ratio of nearly two. Uh, consistent dividends, rising dividends, no dividend cuts. Shareholder yield is up, meaning number of shares outstanding are going down. I can't believe I missed Intel. Like, I don't know how it showed up on my radar. It's around 60 now. It was in the 40s um, as little as like six months ago. And, oh, man, I wish I would have bought the thing. Intel is going to make significant money long term, and I'm definitely doing a deep dive on it. It's uh, There's a strong possibility I'll pick that up. Let, let me, let me uh, I, I feel bad even having to, to scold you like this. But there's a good reason that you did not, that you missed Intel and did not pick that up. And also before you were saying that, uh, that your boy Klarman like doesn't care. Like he, and I agree if he's picking up Intel, he doesn't care about returns. So 20% of my portfolio is Broadcom and NVIDIA. Okay. That's yeah. called the smart play. Intel, <laughs> Intel, let, let me, let me, let me drop knowledge on, on differentials. So Broadcom, NVIDIA, Intel, 
um, as parts of their business are are competitors, right? They're all in the semiconductor industry. They they have other stuff going on, but they're I mean, basically in the chip business. I don't know about semiconductors. Is this really turning into a semiconductor lesson here? It is. Be, it is because you're talking about Intel being great long term. Intel. I have great respect for the history of this company, right? The <laughs> the folks that came from Fairchild and started Intel. Uh, Andy Grove, who escaped the Iron Curtain to come over, like has yeah. phenomenal books that you should read, all of them. Um, but at the same time, you've got your fabulous semiconductor companies. And then you've Wait, got the your rapper? Witcher, F-A-B-O. Um, <laughs> so, which basically means they don't, they don't create their own chips. They outsource their, their chip creation. And then you've got Intel, who does who does create their own chips. If you look all at their, right, uh, if you look at, hold up, just... hold up, well, let me just, no, give me, give me my minute. I gave you your moment in the, the sun and it like burned me with the nonsense. So if you look at their, uh, their 10 Ks, which you said you're about to do, you look at their, their statements, you're going to see like much more, a higher uh, capital intensity going on on the Intel side, right? Um, because they yeah. create their own chips. Now, right now we've got a semiconductor chip shortage that's happening right now, right? Which yes. is why like auto manufacturing, all that stuff is backed up. And it's been created because last year there was a huge boom on consumer demand, but you can't create them as well because supply chains were disrupted. Yes. That means that what's going to happen with NVIDIA and Broadcom, which Broadcom, by the way, is like a three to 4% dividend rate and is crushing it with share increases. So you like the dividend and you like the share increases. That's, that's where you should go. Wait, I want um, shares to go down just to be crystal clear. I know I you don't like to get returns. Shares. You don't like to get returns. I understand that. Um, I think Intel... Intel's behind from an innovation standpoint. Um, I don't think they're going to be able to catch up. I think they're going to get hit um, on the the cost side uh, and the and the inability to stay up with supply chain. I think like I, I just I don't think it's going to work out. Is what I'm saying. I think they might have a temporary. If you're looking maybe next 12 months, there might be a temporary boost. But I think Intel, you were saying long term, is not going to win out against Broadcom and Nvidia. You 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 don't even know. You just did a. Brilliant, a brilliant job articulating why Intel is interesting. Uh, there's so much negativity around it. That's why it's cheap right now. And yet you look at the actual facts, their financials are super solid and they've consistently met their returns. And this is, we'll go back to the short conversation that you always bring up for me. I don't know how many people work at Intel because I haven't read the 10K yet, but there's thousands of people that are going to show up every day that says, Dougal's thinks Broadcom's going to eat us from lunch or Qualcomm, which I own. And we're going to we're going to shut him up. There's also get this. There's also a lot of buzz right now about the fact that all the semi uh, a lot of the stuff, the majority of the stuff is made in Asia, like Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Right. And so that could be a threat to national security. The Biden administration or someone else could go, listen, you have to do X, Y, Z. And Intel is the dominant uh, one of the dominant chip manufacturing brands in the US uh, that could benefit them. The the main reversion piece that is value investing is why you buy something that looks like dog crap, which is kind of Intel right now, but you make sure that you have pretty much no way to lose your money, which right now I would argue you don't because they have such a solid financial position. I mean, Boeing is going to be in similar territory pretty soon because Boeing's really struggled recently, but historically they've been freaking fabulous. Um, so. Yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, those are all good points and all very true. I'm not, I don't want to present a rosy picture as it relates to Intel's future prospects, but their financials are interesting. I, I think their financials are, are decently solid too. And as you mentioned, in the 1990s, it was something like uh, 
high 30s, 37%, we'll call it, of uh, of chip manufacturing happened in the U.S. And now it's like 10 to 12%, something like that. It's been huge. And Biden could Biden could do some things to turn that around. I agree their financials are solid. I agree that they'll still be around, right? But I'm not trying to get in the stock market to not lose money. So like a thesis that says your money will not be lost is not a thesis I'm trying to play. You know why I'm the stock market? You know why I'm in stock market? Uh, no idea. Print attendees, baby. That's why I'm in stock market. <laughs> so no, uh, I hear you. I, I think uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that like Intel's doomed or anything like that. Like by any means, and they they could kick out a decent return. And I think they're um, if they are able to do some of the stuff that you mentioned, where their price is right now is is attractive, um, especially compared to like Nvidia and Broadcom are much more expensive stocks um, right now. I just think long term growth prospects are really solid and Nvidia depending on what happens with, they, they tried last year, um, they put in a bid uh, to buy Arm. Arm Holdings yeah. is a British company from SoftBank. And Arm is basically inside of all smartphones, right? I mean, it's like, it's a, um, it's gonna be hard for them to get this past regulators, but if they can pick up Arm, then their valuation I'd say is incredibly justified. If they can't pick up Arm, question mark. I, I mean, there are a couple of the things that caught my eye as I was looking through. Um, one is around a concentration. And I like to turn this into getting your, your perspective on position sizing and sell criteria, but on concentration. So the, the most uh, concentration in one stock, can you guess what it was of all the 13Fs I looked at? Uh, no. Apple represents 44% of Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio, um, which is just very high. But um, Ben Inker uh, at GMO, right, said last week, that the main thing that has happened to Apple recently is it went from a P of 13 to a P of 39. So multiple expansion is, is basically 300%, uh, which is attributed to most of that growth of that, that stock. And earnings growth. So they have multiple expansion and earnings growth. And yeah, so that's, good point. That's multiple point. Yeah. There is some earnings growth there. But um, the thing that frustrates me about people religiously following Berkshire Holdings at the moment is one, you have people other than Buffett making picks. Now Buffett is made the Apple pick, but like when you talk about the gold holding that we talked about a couple of weeks back, like uh, there's speculation that that wasn't actually Buffett. And um, Snowflake. Yeah. Um, now Apple at a PEF 13 was in my eyes a deal. Apple right now is not a deal. So I guess I just want to tag on to your point, but also mention that the F13 studies I've seen um, often say the number one holding in an individual's portfolio will not outperform in the future. It's the number one holding because it outperformed in the past. So uh, I just want to mention all those factors as it relates to the Berkshire stuff. I I would not recommend going out and buying Apple right now. Yeah, and definitely not taking it as a, as a recommendation. It was just interesting to me, like the level of concentration. If you think of the quintessential value investor, what do you think their top holding would be? Right. It's crazy that in this circumstance, a top holding is 44 percent of one of the uh, most valuable companies like on the planet. Right. Like that is very true. It's insane. Like it's it's the antithesis of what you would what you would think there. Like if I if I told you that Kathy would 44 uh, percent of her portfolio were Tesla, I, I think you'd probably be like, OK, like that makes sense, like qualitatively. Yes. Right. But Berkshire at 44 percent Apple like. Yeah, now you're dropping knowledge. That's uh, that was very surprising to me. It's crazy. It's really crazy. 
Um, Good tidbit. Well, you were going to talk, you're going to talk a little bit about your own portfolio and position sizing. Um, yeah. So basically like when I look at my portfolio, uh, I have 29% of my portfolio is in my top holding. Um, and very concentrated when you go across like the top five to 10. Um, like I, I own about over all of my portfolios, over 50 stocks. And so if you just take that stock number, you could say, oh, it sounds like a diversified, maybe even too diversified portfolio, but actually it's highly concentrated. And so 29% of the top and then around like 80 something percent when you go across the, the top few to top 10. Uh, so it's pretty concentrated. And so that just got me thinking, what's your take? Maybe I, let's just start there. Like what, what's your reaction to that? So 29% top holding, and then how many make up 80% of your holdings? Uh, top 10 make up 80%. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I have no concern at all about having top 10 make up 80% of your portfolio. I mean, my portfolio right now is like five stocks. Um, so that doesn't concern me. Uh, 29%, again, I'm not particularly concerned. I think you, with concentration comes the ability to outperform or underperform if the market flips, right? Um, your your portfolio would, would yeah. never underperform, Dougals. But uh, yeah, I think what I'd keep an eye on is I imagine that 29% is because of great previous performance, right? So at what point do you think that stock goes from where you thought it was undervalued to where you thought it was overvalued. Is it there yet? Yeah, well, again, my, my portfolio has no representation of valuation, like at least when you're coming to, to top stocks. And so it's um, underperformance versus overperformance is more of the way to, to frame it. I know you, you can say that those are equivalent, but the way that um, if, you, if we swap over from uh, position sizing to sell criteria is I have sell criteria if there's underperformance or overperformance and my top holding isn't quite an overperformance. Um, uh, it's the top, the top one, it's Dexcom, not, not a recommendation, but that's the top stock. And right now Dexcom is a little bit over eight X the market. And so it's, it's now like disqualified itself from further purchases in the future. So, uh, 2020 was the last year that I would purchase that stock, but I wouldn't sell until it hit 35 X the market, which is the sell criteria on the high side. Uh, my portfolio, which means it has another 4x the market to go, which is a, a lot. Um, and so that that's where it starts to get interesting and potentially dicey. Yeah. Okay. So I love that you did that because I was using uh, value investor language, which just isn't applicable to everyone, right? Um, or anyone. We should talk, really. <laughs> basically anyone. We should talk sell criteria. And you have that clearly defined, which is like, you're already in the 99th percentile of investors just having a sell criteria, I'd say, because most people don't. Look at that, pat on the back. Uh, so let's do some hypotheticals here. Like you said that could go up another 4X without technically be meeting your sell criteria. Well, let's just, what if it gets to over 50% of your portfolio weight? Like, uh, do you sleep easy at night with that? Or how's that break down for you? Yeah, I'm, I sleep pretty easily. From a psychological perspective, it's, it's not an issue. I'm, I'm, and I'm it, just, go ahead. If we got to 75%. This is, this sounds like, remember that game we'd play in middle school? Like, are you nervous? <laughs> if we playing that right now, we're, we're bringing it back. Yeah. One holding, it just is bombing. Uh, it's like, a, a yeah, 75% uh, would feel scary, especially in the, like, especially in this market where it, things are going to look not great sometime over the coming years, having 75% in one stock is, uh, would feel aggressive. 
Yeah, so we are going to. I think we're going to do a deep dive on the Kelly criteria and how to and how to use that to uh, position your portfolio uh, for portfolio sizing. But I guess Dougal's. I think you might want to amend your sell criteria. I don't buy stocks that go up thirty five times or beat the market by thirty five times. Like that's never going to happen to me uh, based on my conservative approach. Uh, but in your case, I almost think you want your previous sell criteria with a caveat or two, and you'd love to have to deal with these caveats. But maybe if it gets to 50% of your portfolio, maybe you're not selling your entire stake, but you're trimming back. You know, like maybe there's a way to go halvesies on this or to redistribute funds a little bit. Because uh, I don't think you ever want to get to the point where it's 75%. And maybe that's a stupid example. Like maybe we shouldn't even be talking about that because it's not going to happen for you. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. So you're, you're saying like, do maybe do some profit taking. So as right now, the way that my portfolio basically works is it's binary. You hold it or you don't hold it, right? You buy or you don't yeah. buy it, but it's like trimming a little bit. I haven't looked at that. I mean, obviously I've, I've thought about like the idea, but I haven't looked at that from like a back testing perspective. I'd be curious to see uh, what that might look like, but, but I hear you. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where this one goes. Are you seeing strong correlations in most of your holdings though? Like, are you heavily concentrated in technology or healthcare or certain sectors? Yes, but not, it's a, it, like if you loosely define like healthcare tech, yeah. Um, but, but they're, they're in different realms of technology, right? So like, I'll, let me, I'll just drop, obviously not investment advice, but I'll drop the, the top 10 that we talked about before. Um, yeah, please so do. Dexcom, Broadcom, Heiko Corp, um, Tal Education Group, CGen, Illumina, Nvidia, Five Nine, Transdime, um, and so if you think about those stocks, right? Dexcom is is treating diabetes, right? It's a glucose monitoring. Broadcom is in the semiconductor space plus like enterprise software. Um, Heiko and Transdime, I'll just lump those two together, are in like aerospace parts. Right. Um, Tall Education Group is online tutoring and education in China. CGen is Seattle Genetics. Right. And so it's it's a you could you could lump some things into like healthcare. Like you'd say Seattle Genetics and Dexcom are both in healthcare, but they're yeah. but not quite. Right. So it's there's there's some uh, industry diversification kind of that that's happening right there. Although at the high level, it might look concentrated from an industry perspective. Yeah, you're really making me think there. I, I I think there's enough correlation between those holdings that you're never gonna like it'd be really, really hard to get uh one holding to be 50% of your portfolio. So you probably don't have to worry about that. But the back testing on a non-binary approach, like I haven't done that with my back testing. I've never really thought about um you get to this criteria and you sell half. Uh, but just common sense wise, you know, like in in life often going halvesies on something is the way to go. You know, you're uncertain about this, that, or the other. We'll cut it in half and re cut your risk in half and, and go. So I'm going to have to think about that. I, I think what's interesting, like it's something you've, uh, you've stated, which I think is, uh, is great in the past around halvesies, you said it, it might be the way to go, is thinking about what the definition of the way to go is, right? Because there's the um, help you sleep and maximize returns. Right. And like you could say, maybe it's not the best for maximizing returns, maybe. Right. But from a yeah. risk mitigation, help you sleep perspective, if it is and you still get some return from it, then over the long run, 
that means you're more likely to continue with your investment philosophy and strategy. And therefore I could, I could see that, uh, that argument. Yeah. If you go bust um, and speaking of going bust, uh, do you know who lost five hundred million dollars this week? Wait, are you are you? Was that a fishbowl transition? Did you dip into the fishbowl like oh, with man. the smoothness, man? Listen, Harry I'm Belafonte, on episode, bro. <laughs> I'm on episode eight of the podcasting game. Like this is old hat to me now. Um, so who lost five hundred million dollars? Is that what you say? Yeah. yeah. Got any ideas? It was not Roaring Kitty. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of those congressional folks, though. It was not um, Warren Buffett. It was not. It was a Ted are you, Cruz. Are you, are you referring to the uh, the wire transfer from this week? <laughs> I am. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ted Cruz's speedo might have lost five hundred million dollars. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I won't go into too many details. But here's what happened, as I understand it. You you fact check me on this. Uh, Citigroup unintentionally wired nine hundred million dollars to people, uh, to, to clients. I mean, yeah, it happened to me on Tuesday, but no big deal, right? And uh, about half of those funds were given back after they talked and some other people just said, no, you, you sent me this money. It's my money and I'm good with it. They've been to court and they're ruling this week, which I'm sure will be appealed was that the 500 million outstanding, uh, those clients get to keep. So Citigroup is holding the bag on a $500 million loss simply because of all the, you can't even call it an accounting error, but like, uh, I mean, what do you call this? This is really bizarre. I think incompetence. <laughs> like, what, what else do you what else do you call that? If I'm going to send you a wire, right? If 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 Dougal's is going to send Skippy a wire on the the screen that I'm looking at, it says like, make sure that you know who you're sending this to, whether it's a wire or Venmo or PayPal or whatever, because once it's gone, it's gone. Like it says this. And if I click and I'm like, you know, hippity do dom do it anyway, then like, that's just incompetence. I'm familiar with some of the fraud that happens in the banking space. And what often happens is exactly what you're saying. Someone, an intermediary figures out a way to get you to send the right amount of money to the wrong location, right? It, you think it's going to the US and it goes to Romania or something, right? This is bizarre. They send it to the right people. They just send the wrong amount of money. And the wrong amount of money, it was actually like, um, in most cases, I think this was the actual outstanding balance for funds due over the next uh, 20 years or something. And they just paid it all off at once, but they didn't intend to. So it's a really bizarre, um, it's not a fraud. It's like, yeah, incompetence. That uh, Accidents happen. So I get that. Like I, There was one time uh, many, many years ago where I went into a Bank of America. So I had some cash on me. And... I, I handed the deposit slip to the teller. This is back when like you went to tellers. I don't know if people remember this, yeah. um, but so I handed the bank deposit to the teller and he's like, all right, have a good day. And I walk out of the bank and as I'm walking away, I was like, I still have the cash. Like the, the person just like put the money in my account, um, but didn't, didn't actually take the cash. And so like, I went back and gave him the cash, like mistakes happen. Right. Um, but what, at what point what if, it's, it's kind of like like when is a salad not a salad like when it's got macaroni and mayonnaise in it isn't a salad not a salad like when is a mistake not a mistake well what if the judge in your uh in your case ruled that Dougal's gets to keep the cash in his hand i mean that's kind of what happened here yeah i mean but yeah I mean, i'm one of the people that gave the money back i guess but i maybe in that case if i just kept the cash like it is what it is 
Well, good, good work being honest. Uh, we do the right thing on this pod. <laughs> uh, so do you want to talk about how antiquated uh, that shows that our financial system is in terms of the ability to move money? And if there's opportunities for something else, what, what was on your brain around it? You know, when you get paid, you know, when your employer pays you, do you get paid via direct deposit? I do. Okay. Uh, you know, your employer sends that money out on Wednesday for you to get it on Friday. Did you know that? I think my employer does it on Tuesday. Okay. Do you still get it on Friday? I still get it on Friday. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you have any idea the reason why that takes two to three days? Um, I always imagine that it actually doesn't take two to three days, but the banks force it to take that long so they can hold it to the money to make some interest in the meantime. That, that's what okay. I always imagine. Oh, that's so astute. So that's part of what's going on. One is, um, I think basically here, it used to take that long. It's been sped up a little bit. And the banks have always been like, well, hey, we'll get another day worth of interest off those funds. So they're kind of screwing their consumers. But hey, I get it. Um, the other reason it takes that long is in order to do that direct deposit, your employer is basically sending a list of ledger receipts to the Federal Reserve, there's some processing time, some antiquated old system, right? So the question here ultimately becomes, why does it take so long? And then the other piece that's important to mention is there are moments in time in that process where the money is not immediately accounted for, right? There's sometimes when it leaves the bank of your employer and it's working through the Federal Reserve process and it's not in your new bank yet. Um, so this speaking of fraud this is sometimes being used as a way to do fraud financial institutions because everyone kind of has their fingers crossed with this level of trust of like we know how this process is working and we know the funds will show up shortly even though they're not here yet does that make sense you, you mean is should that be the way that it is or did the words that came out of your face make sense <laughs> I was answering uh, yes to the, the words that came out words of your face. out of my face. Do you remember what I had you do Tuesday this week? Was it Tuesday? Or was it Monday? Yeah, you had me buying. This was like <laughs> a cryptic crypto is what I'll call this situation. Basically, he texts me. He's like, dude, buy this slurm or something. No, and stellar. Stellar. Yeah, stellar, whatever, stellar. Whatever, but it was XRL or something. And so, yeah, so I, I bought this, uh, this crypto. XLM. XLM. You bought some crypto. And, <laughs> and what happened? Well, first of all, I went to the moon. No, but I'm, I made like 10%. So I bought $10. My crypto is like eleven fifty now. Hey, that's not, the, that's not the important thing. No, what oh, happened- oh, What's the important thing? Is I sent you $1.23 and it took less than five seconds. And that transaction is fully accounted for. There was, there was no nonsense. It didn't take three days for me to send you, you know, because- I sent you money on the spot, fully accounted for. That's a huge innovation. Now, we sent USD to USD effectively with the intermedium of Stellar Looms, which is XLM, yes. Um, what if I was sending you USD to Mexican Peso or USD to, I mean, you name it, right? Oh, so you're skipping all the Forex nonsense that has to happen too. That also takes five seconds. That also uh, has a fee of, it's like 0. 0.00, I think there's like eight zeros, and then one stellar loom, which right now, one of those is worth 50 cents. So you get to, I mean, it's basically not worth anything, right? Um, now, what if I told you 
that just the, oh, I forget what they call it, but basically just people working in developed countries and sending money home to less developed countries is a $600 billion a year industry. You see any potential there, Dougals? That's enormous. Now, what if I told you that on top of that, my employer would like to keep money in their account until Friday, and I'd like to receive money on Friday, and we could do that as well. Now, so Stellar is uh, built by the same guy that built Ripple. I know you're not a crypto guy. Yeah, but I know about some lawsuits sometimes. That dude was a fraudster, wasn't he? No. So he's kind of, well, that's for debate. I think that's for debate. Anyway, Ripple was this idea um, to transfer funds like that. But basically, you keep the power in the bank's hands. Now, Stellar is uh, a more advanced technology, but a similar idea where you keep the power in the people's hands. I mean, you buying this hypothesis at all? Um, yeah, I, I think it, like the hypothesis makes a lot of sense. I'm curious about the... Um... I guess like the IP associated with it and how defensible it is, but I, but I, I think what, like what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Like the the amount of uh, the amount of money that unlocks for the everyday person and for corporations is huge. It's probably bigger than a tax break. So the stellar currency, all it's really used for, is to be the intermediary between, say, the U.S. dollar and the Mexican peso, right? So if you need to transfer between those currencies. It's basically a market maker around, hey, we're going to use Stellar to, to transfer between those currencies. If you go past cryptos and just talk about blockchain, I mean, th- this is a lot of what, from a, a money perspective, like the beauty of the potential of blockchain, I think generally comes from. I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense. To me, it gets back to like, I, what, what I don't understand is the, um, what's the core tech that's specific behind Stellar? That's going to be defensible because it sounds like it ends up becoming a commodity that sits on top of blockchain. No, so again, this is going to be um, in my eyes. This is the internet boom in the year two thousand. Like, there's a bunch of bright ideas, but there's going to be five winners, and everyone else goes bust. Right? Um, Stellar. It could be Ripple. It could be Stellar. It could be. I mean, there's five thousand or how many? There's so many more. And I'm sure it's like the Betamax VHS thing. Like some have better tech. It will be whichever one ends up being just becoming commonplace, right? Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I agree with you. So it's not, it's not about the, the tech. It's not about Stellar. It's basically what you're saying. It's not about Stellar itself. It's about the, the narrative and the, um, to get back to uh, our boy, our shills, Robert Schiller again, it's going to be about the product marketing and the narrative that you have around, um, around what it can unlock. And whoever does that well and has some technology to back it up is I, I hear you with the use case. I think this yeah. is awesome, right? Um, I, I think it's like it's fascinating and what it unlocks is like ridiculous. Um, so I, I hear that. It's really cool. Thanks for dragging me into that. You know how um, in Africa, like they just kind of skipped uh, laying coax cable. Like yep, they just yep, said, screw yep. this. Like the way it did, and they kind of skipped computers too. Like it's just smartphones on a cell network, right? Uh, Stellar's saying we're gonna skip that in places like Africa with banking. Like we're we're never even we're never even probably talking about nationalized currency. We're gonna on your smartphone, you're gonna get some Stellar, like, and you're gonna trade. So 
the other thing that's really important about that as it's supposed to bitcoin we shared the the energy use with bitcoin and how you're like destroying the world basically because the technology there is you find a way to do digital mining like you're mining for gold and that's why it often is compared to gold because it's really hard and really expensive to mine right it's just a different type of mining you're not digging into the earth you're using electricity and computing power right well stellar and some of these other ones you can actually use for microtransactions you could actually pay someone uh seven cents because you want to read their article or shoot someone whatever else and then you can uh basically code in criterion for the movement of that cash so you could sell something like an artist could sell a painting right and then you could Uh, say every time this painting sells again you kick 10 percent of like a royalty artist yeah like but you can program all that stuff in as well it's a fast that is the one that that finally got me in going this is not an investment but this is a fascinating use case it's where um if you think about the the way the ledger works for blockchain overall i mean i, I do think it's like it's really fascinating what can be done in the contract space in the financial space it's basically any anywhere that you have um where tracking is tricky complicated Right. Um, if you like think about what would happen with like Napster and then Apple iTunes legitimized actually trading of music. Right. But still, how do you make sure your your digital copyright like is good to go? And you brought up art. I think like digital art is really hard to, yes. to track too. like anything that requires tracking. I think it's great. Like, let's just say Stellar and the TechPine Stellar is what is what does make it. So we could just use that. Um, I wonder if it just becomes invisible, actually. Like, I don't see the reason for, and maybe you fill in a gap I don't have. I don't see the reason for the, like, seller looms themselves, for me to ever know that that was a thing that occurred. Like, why couldn't you just send me USD and I get pesos? And in the background, sure, there's, like, some stellar. But, like, why would I ever need that currency itself? Yeah, that's a good point. And that might be the thing that wins out. Um, But I think the thought again, this isn't about stellar looms, but the thought with this, uh, a currency that doesn't respect borders is you, you speak the same language. So if I'm buying something from the artist in Colombia, right. It's we're, we're talking in, in a common currency rather than two different currencies and translating between that. So it, like yeah. that that's that's where i hear that because it's either um if you say everyone just has stellar looms yeah and behind the scenes it's actually usd to pesos that's going to be harder from a like a systems perspective to overtake i'm sending you usd but you get pesos like because now now you're keeping the same construct but in the yes. background there's other stuff going on that's harder than saying everyone now has to go buy seller looms like that when you change changing like behavior like that especially across like political divides and geographic divides and cultural norms i think it's just gonna be a lot harder but but the tech behind it is is unlocking so speak speaking of bitcoin i'm gonna dive into the fishbowl for what i think is gonna be our last item here um so micro strategy are you familiar with the company the business no, no. So MicroStrategy is a publicly traded company and their core business is analytics software. So um, previous companies that I've been at have used MicroStrategy. So I've just known them for that. What's fascinating with Bitcoin 
is last year, MicroStrategies basically turned into, I, I got in, they turned into like a, a Bitcoin shop. Um, I got into this because we were talking about Tesla buying Bitcoin, right? Yeah. And so, so I was just kind of looking around. This is crazy to me. This is really crazy. So um, it's the operating company that's the largest holding of Bitcoin. It's about three and a half billion dollars of Bitcoin that they have. And in their 10K from, uh, from last year, um, it says, I'm going to read you some things that are not going to seem like fact, because if I read any of, if I read Dexcom's 10K and it said something like this, like I would dump the holding. MicroStrategy pursues two corporate strategies in the operation of its business. One strategy is to grow our enterprise analytics software business. And the other strategy is to acquire and hold Bitcoin. Like that is a core strategy at the top of their 10K. Let let me throw out something else that they said in here. And then we've got a, a quiz to wrap things up. We believe that our Bitcoin strategy is complementary to our analytics software and services business, as we believe that our Bitcoin and related activities in support of the Bitcoin network enhance awareness of our brand and can provide opportunities to secure new customers for our analytics offerings. React. Oh, uh, okay. So, oh, so, okay. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) that's that's exactly the reaction. No, but it's the same thing as, it's, okay. Yeah, no, it's I guess it's no, no, no it's, it's this, just, this is different. This is different. Well, they're, they're, they're saying like, we have two, like a half of our strategy. We are an uh, enterprise analytics business. Half of our strategy we're saying is to buy Bitcoin. And the justification for that is that because we buy Bitcoin, more companies will now buy our analytics software. Can, like that Tesla, Tesla is not saying, at least not that I've seen in their 10K, like, yeah, we sell cars and batteries and stuff, but yeah, we also buy Bitcoin. So if you want to buy our stock, it's going to be primarily because of Bitcoin. The size of their Bitcoin holding is not even close to like their, <sighs> their market value as we're talking with MicroStrategy. All right. This, yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of a different beast. <laughs> I, can, I mean, I in their t- like, and, uh, and our boy, Mr. Musk, he might like tweet something like this, but in the 10K, like that means the board is like, yep. You know what I mean? Like it's a different. Like this is a. This is the the first line in a 10k. Is about it goes. Bitcoin. It goes back to what I said earlier. Like, how do they know when to sell this? I mean, yeah, I, they I operate know. in the U.S., so U.S. dollars are handy to have if you operate in the U.S. I mean, they're just nice to have, Not right? So it might have been a place of desperation. I don't know. But so here, here's a here's a little little fun quiz in their 10k. It's 214 pages long. Yeah. Okay, in those 214 pages. This is historically, it's an analytics business. How many times do you think the word analytics came up? Uh, 214 I'm pages. Two, I'm going to go 200. 47. Okay. okay. Revenue, revenue is something that you, you probably think that like a company wants to generate. How many times do you think revenue came up in their 214 page 10K? 20. No, this one was more. So 341. Okay. Gotcha there. Okay, good, good. Okay. Now, the name of this company is MicroStrategy. How many times do you think MicroStrategy came up? In the 10k, you better end with Bitcoin here. Uh, uh, 100, 159. That was pretty close. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, cash, which is one of your favorite things, right? You love companies with cash. How many times do you think cash came up? Seven, 214. Okay. Ooh. So, so yeah. So some of those, it's like, all right, you you said revenue 341 times. You said cash and on cash, nearly every yeah, page, yeah. right? You yeah. said that a lot. That's awesome. How many times do you think Bitcoin came up? I mean, I don't even, uh, 300, 349 times. So the most popular word in their, (laughs) in their, their 10 K was Bitcoin. It's an analytics company called MicroStrategy that mentioned analytics 47 times and mentioned Bitcoin 
349 times. Go out and buy that stock. Have uh, has, so has their stock price reflected? Yes, the, uh, rise in Bitcoin. It has. So for most of like 2017 through most of 2020, right? Um, MicroStrategy is sitting. Their stock price is sitting somewhere between 100 and 200. Right? They're kind of they're going back and forth around there. Okay. Um, now we are in 2021. Their stock price is now over a thousand. Let's say we're we're just you know we're chatting it up, walking along the street in non-pandemic times, and I'm saying, oh dude, there's this analytics company right whose stock has gone up tenfold. What would you have guessed that they've done? Got some more clients, man. I'm going to tell you, they tenfold the revenue. They've taken out six hundred million dollars in debt in convertible notes to buy Bitcoin. Is 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 what they've done, and the market has rewarded them. Uh, analysts have basically said sell sell the stock and the market has rewarded them 10x over the last month you know how i say you should never short uh individual stock this might be the one <laughs> <laughs> this is bad man this, that is unbelievable <laughs>